Welcome back to another episode of The Jacob Johnston Show. One thing that I have been crystal clear on and have been consistent about is that, hey, I was willing to give the 15 days that the president initially asked for in order to determine what can be done to increase our medical capacity or find treatments and cures. But we are well past that 15 days, and we are starting to see that our actions in trying to prevent the coronavirus is now causing more damage than the virus itself. So as the Daily Wire has reported, unemployment claims topped 6 million, 6 million for the second straight week, even higher than predicted. And so it goes on to read, roughly 6.6 million Americans applied for unemployment in the past week, according to data released by the Department of Labor on Thursday. The new data is significantly higher than economists' expectations, who predicted around 5 million lost jobs. According to the Wall Street Journal, for the past three weeks, more than 16 million people have filed for unemployment, largely due to coronavirus-related business closures. The Department of Labor also revised last week's 6.6 million weekly claim numbers, then the highest in the U.S., up to 6.8 million. Okay, and so now we're starting to see uh, where we are getting into a situation that, as predicted, this would be unsustainable, and that we have to start talking about opening up the economy again. Now, I get it. The left is going to go out there and shout, oh, you just want people to die for money. No, that is not the case whatsoever. This isn't a situation where we're talking about money versus lives. We're talking about lives versus lives and the long-term consequences of a sustained economic shutdown. As people are losing all of their savings, all of their retirement that they have built up, where they are getting to the point where they're starting to wonder how much longer can they afford to pay the mortgage, pay the rent, get groceries, provide for their family. And if we continue along this path and we face a complete economic collapse of the United States, How many people are going to die then of starvation? How long will it be before we become like Venezuela and we cannot continue this? Now, the president is talking about being able to reopen the economy around the end of April. And this is all being justified based off of the coronavirus. And we were told that this is so serious that millions of people could die. And initially, that's what the data seemed to have been telling us. But we are getting more information now, and the models are constantly being revised towards lower numbers. But we're also finding out that the data that we do have, in which we are basing all of this off of, is wrong. And when we look at it, one of the places that is skewing the numbers is New York and how they're reporting the coronavirus deaths. And we'll get to that later on in this particular episode. Now, there have gone off uh, with other voices in the conservative movement, like Rush Limbaugh. Now, I had been critical about those who were calling for the reopening of the economy during the initial 15 days, because my theory was we can survive 15 days and recover from that. But the longer this goes on, the harder the recovery is going to be. And so while I have been critical of those who were calling for the reopening earlier on, now people who are calling for a reopening, it is not premature to have that discussion. 
But the left, they really don't want to have this discussion because they never want to let a crisis go to waste. And they see this as an opportunity to get people used to government money in hopes of being able to continue that towards their socialist utopia after the crisis has passed. Now, Rush Limbaugh has come out and pointed out that more people today are scared about the economic impact of all of this than the virus itself. He goes on, and I quote, I never have believed that anything like this would happen with people being ruined, said Limbaugh. It's hard to quantify, it's hard to describe, and I'm frightened for people. You know, there's a poll out there that more people today are scared about the economic impact of all of this than the virus. That makes perfect total sense. I'm scared to death. I'm scared for the people of this country. And at this particular time, 538 was reporting that nearly 10 million Americans have filed for jobless claims in just two weeks. More people were worried about the economic impact of the crisis than the virus itself. Other polls, meanwhile, have found that Americans prioritize stopping the spread of the virus over saving the economy. Now, where you view this, the economy versus stopping the spread of the virus, may, in some portion, be dependent on where you're getting your information and how much fear-mongering is going on, or more to the point, how much information you're not being told. Like I said, on the left, they want to make you believe that this is a question of life versus money, what is more important. On the right here, we're talking about life versus life. Because shutting down the economy doesn't come without loss of life itself, from people not being able to get the food that they need, what the long-term impact is going to be, suicide, depression, all of that. And so now we're doing this analysis where we're trading off one set of lives for another set of lives. And the left, they never want to have any of this discussion because they're hypocrites. They don't actually care. They're just trying to push a particular narrative. But let's go through and do a deeper analysis of all of this. So we got around 16 million people at this point who have filed for unemployment. That's a lot of jobs. And with the shutdown of the economy, even though we've passed legislation to try and bail out businesses, to try and keep them afloat, with some people going out there, especially on the left, trying to say that this could go on for 18 months, the bailout that we have passed through Congress is not going to last for 18 months. And so we definitely need to be talking about reopening the economy because what happens if, after all of this is over, all those jobs, 16 million jobs, are gone because of the inability for those businesses to be open went under because they're still accruing expenses? Well, what's going to happen there? That's going to make the recovery pretty hard, and we're going to be in a hard time for decades as a result of all this spending and all this unemployment. This has already made what we have seen during 9-11, which I was a senior in high school when that happened, and the 2008 housing crash look like little blips on the radar compared to what we are seeing here. And so we got to be more thoughtful about all of this. Now, luckily, they are starting to come out with a test that will be able to check your antibodies in your plasma in order to determine who has had the virus and is now immune to it, and so they can go back into the workforce and start getting the economy up and going again. And this gets to another big question here. 
related to the data, which is how deadly is this? How many people have actually got this? And it was not much, you know, no big deal. Well, again, we'll get to that in just a moment. Now, Trump already knowing that we cannot sustain an economic shutdown for very long is developing a way to reopen the economy. And he's even creating a second task force to see about how we can open the economy so that we can get things going again without putting more lives in unnecessary jeopardy. And that is great. Now, there are some economists out there as well saying that, hey, when we open up the economy, it will rebound quickly. People will be desperate to get out of their house and they'll be spending a little bit more. And with people going back to work and earning a paycheck, alleviating their financial fears, they're going to be more willing to spend. Now, that is one interpretation of it. Another interpretation is people are going to see, holy crap, look what we just went through. What if it happens again? They might not go out in public for a while. I mean, as far as going to a movie theater or going to a restaurant, you know, those businesses may suffer for a period of time until fears and tensions alleviate. But people are also going to take a look at their financial decisions of the past and go, hey, you know what? I need to save up for an emergency. So they might go off and start developing an emergency fund of three to six months of expenses, just like all the financial experts recommend. And they may also prioritize eliminating debt, seeing as how when their income was cut off and they were having to rely on unemployment, how the level of debt that they have has put them in greater jeopardy and has put more financial strain on their lives. So it is not unreasonable to assume that there may be a period after the economy opens up that there isn't going to be a huge rebound as people try to take steps to safeguard themselves from the next financial crisis that seems to be occurring at a greater and greater frequency. Now, this may be good for business for someone like Dave Ramsey, as people may sign up for something like Financial Peace University in order to help safeguard them from the next crisis. Now, as economists are trying to say, hey, the economy will rebound rather quickly, there is a little bit of a side note to that, and that is their projection on the economy rebounding quickly is based off of if the government doesn't get in the way. But we already know that the government is looking to get in the way. Remember, when we passed that $2 trillion stimulus package, they included an additional $600 per week in unemployment benefits, and that has started going out as part of the coronavirus relief bill that was passed last month in March. But the new payments combined with the state unemployment benefits already are causing concerns that some workers could be in a position to actually make more money by leaving their jobs. For an economy already fractured, the article goes on to say, by social distancing policies meant to curb the spread of the coronavirus, the perverse incentive threatens to do further damage, according to workers, business owners, and economists who spoke to Fox News. It's a huge issue. A large slice of the U.S. workforce will make more money by not working than by working. 
And this is pointed out by David Henderson, an economist and research fellow at Stanford University, Hoover Institution. And yes, it gets worse. So the average state already gives out $463 per week in unemployment benefits. When combined with the new $600 per week, that works out to $1,063 per week, the equivalent of more than $26 an hour or $55,000 a year. So now you're starting to see what the problem is with restarting the economy, that the projections of, hey, this will rebound quickly if the government doesn't interfere, we see that the government is interfering. Because let's go through and do a little bit of a math here. So that's $55,000 per year. Now, if we're talking about someone who works at a place like McDonald's, and let's say they're getting $12 an hour, should they stay working at $12 an hour or even $15 an hour, or should they find a way to get themselves fired in a way that they qualify for unemployment and get $26 an hour, an $11 an hour raise, and be able to earn $55,000 a year and being able to blame it on the coronavirus? Now, Let's take a look at this for a household. So let's say you're going off and you're making $15 an hour, and let's say your spouse is making $15 an hour. That's $30 an hour. However, if both of you get fired, that would be $52 an hour for your household as opposed to the $30 an hour for your household. And so now we're starting to see here that depending on the language of the bill and depending on how states are calculating what they're going to do for the unemployment per week, the potential for abuse, especially in Democrat states, to be able to lift workers up from working at $30 an hour for the household to working at $52 an hour of a household, that those on minimum wage could be incentivized to not work as their income for the house goes from $62,400 a year to $110,000 a year. So let's go through and take a look at this. If you were to remain at work right now and continued working and your income prospect for your household is $62,400 a year gross, or you could decide not to work, your spouse could decide not to work and bring in $110,000 a year for your household, well, it's not hard to see where this is going to lead economically and how this is going to affect bringing the economy back after we get through all of this coronavirus. And so this is where the Republicans are out there and talking about, hey, is the steps we're taking to combat the coronavirus worse than the coronavirus itself? What is the long-term impact of this? Could this completely collapse the nation? And why would we be out there incentivizing people? I mean, I can go out there and understand a 100% match for lost income due to all the business closures, but to give people a raise to not work, that is not smart policy. That is not where we should be going in any way, shape, or form. So going through and starting to question our actions and going through and taking a look at the long-term impact is not about hey, you just care more about money than lives. No, it's about looking at the second order effects, the third and fourth order effects of our actions here and going, hey, we're going overboard here and trying to justify every action because of the coronavirus. 
doesn't make what we're doing smarter. It doesn't make what we're doing any less damaging. Now, as more and more Republicans are starting to ask these particular questions, and the Democrats fear-mongering over the coronavirus, trying to hype it up to be even bigger than what it actually is, they are now starting to go off and try and find other distractions for us. So as we stated, they have gone out there and they've tried to go off and claim that, hey, coronavirus it shows us racism and how it affects the black community more and not doing any real deep analysis on that, but rather it's a virus of white supremacy or that uh, the Pope is out there trying to claim that the virus, the pandemic is nature's response to humans inaction over climate change. So they're going off and trying to give us a bunch of distractions or at least the left a bunch of distractions so that they don't hear any of the actual arguments related to, hey, you know, what we're doing could be worse than the virus itself. Now they're trying to go off and provide other distractions. So as you know, Wisconsin held its primaries and people were going out and voting in person. And the left comes out with their narrative. Well, this is the GOP's fault that people were going out and voting because the GOP wants people to die. And here's what that sounded like. Why didn't the state Supreme Court allow uh, the governor's request to delay the election to go forward? And do voters there feel like politics were at play in that decision? You know, a lot of voters I talked to, and I was at a Washington High School in Sherman Park in Milwaukee's uh, central city yesterday, uh, a lot of African-American voters who felt like Republicans were trying to keep them away from the polls. So just to be clear, what the narrative that the Democrats are trying to push is that Republicans blocked efforts to delay the election because they wanted Democrats to go out, get infected, and die before the November election, thereby altering the outcome of the election in November because all the Democrats or a large portion of the Democrats would die of the coronavirus. And so this is just Republicans playing politics and playing with your life so that they can affect the election. Huh, that's interesting because the Republicans didn't have any part of this. You know, first off, this is the Democrat primary. Now, in going through and taking a look at this, the Wall Street Journal's opinion section uh, came out and debunked this talking point. You know, Wisconsin planned to mitigate the coronavirus threat with a large increase in vote-by-mail so fewer people would need to leave their homes. The Democrat National Committee sued to force the delay of the election outright. So here's the thing that's going on, just to set this up. So the Democrats were out there taking a look at their primary, and the Democrat governor decides, hey, you know what? We're just going to expand vote-by-mail. We're going to go through and try and make it so people don't have to come out of their homes. Well, then the Democrat National Committee takes the Democrat-controlled state of Wisconsin, the Democrat governor, to court to say, no, 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 we don't want to expand vote-by-mail. We just want to delay the election outright, the primary outright, which delayed the response for what to do. 
So this delayed the ability to get mail-in ballots out to people so that they wouldn't have to show up to the votes. This is a Democrat governor versus the Democrat National Committee that caused this problem. The piece goes on to say, last Thursday, a federal judge denied the extreme request but said vote by mail needed to be extended. Instead of receiving ballots by April 7th, he said, Clerks needed to count any ballot received by next Monday, April 13th, after apparently realizing that this could distort the electoral process by allowing Tuesday's reported results to influence votes. The judge issued another order banning the state election board from reporting any results before April 13th. The Republican National Committee asked the U.S. Supreme Court to intervene. Uh, and five justices agreed that the district judge was outside his authority. His remedy would fundamentally alter the nature of the election by allowing voting for six additional days after the election, they wrote in an unsigned uh, opinion. Uh, By trying to muzzle election results, they added, the district court, in essence, enjoined non-parties to this lawsuit. So in going through and taking a look at this, so the Democrat governor wanted to go through and just expand vote by mail and get everyone a ballot out to their home so they wouldn't have to show up in person. A Democrat national committee decided to take the Democrat governor to court going through and saying, no, 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 we don't want to expand vote by mail. We just want to delay the primary altogether. A Democrat appointed judge stepped in and decided, hey, you know what? We're going to say the law doesn't apply because of a pandemic, even though there's no situation in which you can suspend the law because of a pandemic, and decided that he would allow voting not just on election day or before election day, but try to extend voting for an entire week, right? To try and ex- you know expand voting which is unconstitutional, you know, going through and taking a look at this. What is this perpetual voting? So what if we got to that point and not enough people sent in their ballots in order to get the results that they wanted? Were they going to continue to expand elections so that they can go out until they get enough votes for their preferred candidates? As you can see, this would be bad. But then the Obama appointed judge really overstepped his bounds and authority by trying to say, hey, you can't issue any results before the April 13th to mitigate the effect of influencing the election. Because let's say you weren't planning on voting because you thought, oh, of course people were going to vote this particular way. And people started reporting that the election was favoring the other guy. Well, then that would influence you to go out and cast your vote, whereby in a normal situation, maybe you wouldn't have because you overestimated your candidate's ability. So the Obama judge decided to come out and go, okay, we're going to make sure no one can report this before April 13th. But in doing so, he expanded the lawsuit to enjoin people who were not part of the lawsuit. And so this judge was basically issuing an unconstitutional order that, by the way, he had no authority to do. And only then did the Republicans step in and go, hey, can this judge do this? Because this doesn't seem to be within the bounds of the court's authority, and it seems to violate uh, quite a few laws here. 
Can you look at that? And that's when the Supreme Court uh, stepped in to take a look at the decision. Uh, the Supreme Court decision came an hour after the Wisconsin Supreme Court swatted aside Governor uh, Tony Evers' effort to unilaterally postpone the election. So now he was trying to postpone the election at the last second. Uh, through March, uh, Mr. Evers, a Democrat, had indicated the election should proceed and issue an executive order exempting polling places from his mass gathering bans. So now this got into another situation where the governor, instead of going to the legislature asking for you know, an emergency, hey, can we change this for this one time, decided he would try and enact something unilaterally in violation of the law. And so he came down to his option of last resort, which was to exempt polling locations from his mass gathering ban. So here's a situation whereby if the Democrat National Committee hadn't stepped in, the mail-in ballots would have been sent out, they would have gotten uh, their vote by mail, and people would have been able to vote safely. But only because the Democrat National Committee stepped in and tried to postpone it indefinitely did this mess occur. And in going through and doing so, you know, this judge who instead of following the law and upholding the court, you know, God forbid, you know, a Democrat appointed judge ever consider that, decided to issue an order that was illegal and unconstitutional on its face. And all of this between the Democrat governor, the Democrat National Committee, and a Democrat appointed judge created such delays and such confusion over what was going to happen that by the time it was all settled, there wasn't time to get those ballots out to the people. And so it left them no option but to come out and vote in person. But no, 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 don't worry. Don't worry, Democrats. You know, we have a way to blame the Republicans for it because it was ultimately at the United States Supreme Court. But the United States Supreme Court didn't actually rule on whether or not they had to vote in person. The Supreme Court, you know, with the five Republican justices, didn't even make a ruling on whether or not people could vote by mail. The only thing the Supreme Court ruled on was whether or not they can continue voting after the scheduled election day and whether or not the results of the votes casted on election day could be suppressed for an additional week while voting went on. So the Republican Supreme Court, the United States Supreme Court, only ruled on, hey, you can't suppress revealing the results of the election for a week, and you can't continue voting past election day. That's it. But as far as how they voted, in person or by mail, there was no ruling by the United States Supreme Court. That was left up to the states. And that was a battle going on between the Democrats and the Democrat National Committee. But of course, the Democrats and the media, as dishonest as they are, are going to come out there and try and claim, oh, it was the Republicans because they want you to die so that you're not around to vote in November. The Democrats, they're so dishonest. And then you wonder why the country is so fractured, so divided. is because half the population is listening to these liberal lunatics 
gaslighting them with a bunch of false information, false narratives in order to stir up anger and emotion so that they can't even think rationally. They don't even have a clue what is actually going on. And this is why you see them going out online all the time, making some of the most stupid comments that you can think of, uh, trying to repeat debunked information. And you're going out there going, haven't you been paying attention to anything? Hey, do some goddamn research before you act like an idiot online. And yet they point to, you know, a report that contains debunked information. And then you realize that the reason why they are so stupid online is because they don't have access to reliable, credible information. And this tears the country apart. Of course, in addition to the, oh, the Republicans, they wanted you to get coronavirus and die before the election, or going out there and talking about their other favorite election issue, claiming that the Republicans are engaged in voter suppression. Now, they can't find a single shred of evidence to support any Republican action that actually goes towards suppressing the votes. Now, of course, they try to say voter ID laws suppress the votes, and we ask them how, and their response usually indicates that they believe that the African-American community are a bunch of idiots that can't do basic things like get a driver's license, and that if you see a black person driving, they're doing so illegally. That's what the Democrat argument boils down to, and yet they don't seem to grasp how it's their own racism that they are trying to project onto their political opponents. But you go through here and you take a look at what their claims are on voter suppression. They just make the claims, but they can't actually provide any actual evidence or point to any indication of voter suppression by the Republicans. They just make that claim and then move along and think that if they repeat it enough, everyone will believe it. But there's a reason why they try to go off and say they're suppressing the vote. So let me go ahead and tell you what they're claiming, and then let's go analyze what they actually mean. There are national implications even on the gov- the primary side for Biden v. Sanders because uh, Bernie Sanders won Wisconsin last time around, but if Biden had come in strong today, there might have been increasing pressure. There's a division among the Sanders team and advisors for him to uh, to suspend his campaign. That's right, Andrea. But I think, as you point out, this could have really impacted the Democratic primary. But I think the bigger issue is what you were talking about before, which is the national implications of this. There's going to be a big election in November, and there are real questions about how safe it's going to be to conduct these elections, whether or not there's going to be election reforms needed. Um, Historically, Republicans have been caught by federal courts trying to suppress the votes, trying to suppress especially African-American voters who they think that who are historically not um, in favor of backing Republican voters. And then you have the president who has said, look, we don't want to expand the voting block in America. We don't want to expand voting in America because Republicans might not have a seat for generations to come. This administration didn't plan for this pandemic when they could have. They didn't plan. They didn't get the testing underway. Um, And now we are not going to let them 
take this democracy away from us. Working with Republican and Democratic Secretary of States across the country to make sure that we extend vote at home, vote by mail to every American, and also make sure that these polls are open early, 20 days early in November. James, last question. I got 45 seconds for you to answer it. You said a while back, if Biden does nothing, he wins. Is that still true? Yeah, I mean, he's going to do something, obviously, that that's a little poetic license. But I, I think he's in a commanding position. But we got to be careful about is it mucking around with his voting and that they're going to try it because that Trump, everybody, all Republicans admitted we can't win if everybody votes. Did you catch the two cons that the Democrats were running in those clips? So let me explain this to you. Now, first off, they tried to say that Republicans are suppressing the vote and that There are court cases. Of course, they can't ever provide you an actual court case showing Republicans suppressing the vote, but the court cases that they try to point to, if they ever do get around to providing you an example, is that of voter ID. And somehow providing voter ID is suppressing the vote. But in order for them to make that claim, in order for that claim to be credible, you have to understand what they mean by suppressing the vote. See, this is the con where by they say one thing, you know, using language to make it seem like they're making a point, but their meaning is actually different here. So let's go through and take a look at suppressing the vote. Well, as we know from Project Veritas, that the election commissioner from New York has come out and was, or was not coming out, but was caught on hidden camera admitting that voter fraud happens that the democrats bust people around from precinct to precinct in order to vote multiple times and so how this works is democrat organizations get a hold of voter roll information and they say that they're conducting voter research you know trying to go through and see who's registered to vote and what their voting patterns are such as how often they vote they can't figure out who they voted for But they can go through and go, okay, this person is a registered voter. It doesn't matter what party, but hey, look at this. They haven't voted in the past three or four elections, or they haven't voted in the past two or three presidential races. So we're going to predict that chances are they're not going to vote in this election. So here's what we're going to do. Since there's no voter ID law and the voter rolls, gives us the name and address of a voter that hasn't voted in the past few elections, we're going to go around and we're going to have people go to these precincts. And so they go to the precincts and go, hey, I'm John Doe. I live at 112 South Avenue, right? And because there's no ID required to be presented because the Democrats have blocked that, they're given the ballot for that particular voter. And then they go off and vote. Then they go to the next location and go, I'm Emmett Smith. I live at 515 you know, uh, Avenue C. And because there's no ID, they get the ballot and they get to vote. And so when they're going off trying to claim that voter ID laws is voter suppression is because when Republicans look at votes, we think one person, one vote. When the Democrats look at voting, They think one person should be allowed to vote numerous times and therefore restricting voting to one person, one vote 
is voter suppression. That's how the Democrats are going off and defining voter suppression here. Now, another thing that they are saying is they want to expand the voting block, that they want to expand voting, right? But notice how they leave out who they want to expand voting to. Because the voting block in the United States, the voting in the United States is every American citizen. That's who has the right to vote. Every American citizen. So if they're talking about wanting to expand voting and expand voting blocks, well, if the current voting block is every American citizen, then the only way to expand it is to expand voting to non-citizens, which would require a constitutional amendment to make that legal. And when they say non-citizens, they don't even mean permanent residents. They mean anybody in the United States, whether they're here legally or illegally. And we know this because if you look at various Democrat states and localities, they have expanded voting to illegal immigrants. Well, illegal immigrants are part of the community, and they should have a voice and representation in local government. Therefore, we're expanding voting to illegal immigrants. And we see this in several areas of the country. And so what they want to do is say, by not expanding the vote to non-citizens or not expanding the vote to illegal immigrants, Republicans are suppressing the votes. And that if we expanded the vote to non-citizens and illegal immigrants, the Republicans wouldn't be able to get elected for a generation. And this is why they're trying to suppress the vote. Well, they would be right that Republicans wouldn't be able to get elected anymore because what we would have under the Democrats' plan of expanding the voting bloc is every election year, as the Democrats continue to push for open borders, is that during an election year, what would happen? The Democrats would pander to not just you know the far left, but to foreign nationals, to foreign countries, saying, hey, if you come here to the United States and vote for us, we're going to you know, promise to benefit you. We're going to make it so that you know, if you come to the country illegally, you will benefit. You will get taxpayer money to fund your life, to send back to your family in your home country. Or we promise to provide more money to your government. And what would happen? Those governments would start sending their citizens across our borders every election year, get them registered to vote because the Democrats expanded the voting bloc, and then we would have a bunch of illegal immigrants and foreign nationals voting in our election, influencing our representation, and we would never again have a government that would represent the people of the United States, but rather, as the Democrats view themselves, representatives of various parts of the world community, which is very interesting because uh, considering how much the Democrats have gone out there and railed about Russian interference in the election, well, based on the Democrats' idea of how to expand the vote, Russia would be able to send their citizens over to the United States every election year to vote and influence the outcome of the election. And considering that Democrats don't even want to restrict voting to one person, one vote, that means these foreign nationals, based off of how the Democrats are actually defining everything, 
would be able to come across our borders freely, register to vote, and vote multiple times. And any attempt to stop people from illegally crossing our borders and voting multiple times, the Democrats go out there and say, no, 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 that's voter suppression. Republicans are trying to suppress the votes, and they're only trying to suppress the votes because, you know, if they don't, they can't get elected. You understand the scam that they are trying to pull there and how they are trying to sell our country out and how they're trying to commit election fraud and trying to gain support for election fraud by their use of language, fraudulently claiming one thing while meaning pretty much the exact opposite. The Democrats, they don't actually want fair elections. They don't actually like democracy. What they are going out there and doing is promoting a way for them to be able to get around you, to drown out your voice, to drown out your voice in government, to drown out your representation in government, so that they no longer have to concern themselves with pretending to care about the issues you care about. They don't even have to go out there anymore and pretend like they're representing you. They want to be able to tell you, go screw yourself and be able to import people. So they don't want voters selecting representatives. They want representatives selecting their voters. And just so no one catches on, just so they're able to keep distractions, they use language to use words like voter suppression. You know, And they go out there and try and claim that Republicans want people to die. And they go out there with fear-mongering, with distractions, all so that you don't understand and realize what it is the Democrats are actually doing and what they're actually promoting. Now, speaking of election, Joe Biden continues to prove himself unfit for office other than his mental decline. So the left now has to try and find a way to promote Joe Biden as a leader when it comes to the country, someone who would have handled the coronavirus pandemic better than Trump. But the problem is everything that he promotes or most of the things that he promotes are things that Donald Trump has already done. Now, except for the whole, you know, Medicaid uh, for all and, you know, permanent UBI, you know, what President Trump uh, has done is what Joe Biden is trying to rip off. So for instance, there's a great article here from the Daily Wire. Seven times Joe Biden called for that, or seven things, sorry, that Biden called for that Trump already did to combat coronavirus. So it starts off with number one. Biden called for coronavirus tests to be free nine days after signed, after Trump signed the Families First Coronavirus Response Act. Okay, so he... Donald Trump already provided free coronavirus testings. Nine days later, Biden comes out and says, we should provide free testings. It's like, you know, were you paying attention? Number two, Biden called for coronavirus testing to be available nationwide. Trump already made that announcement 12 days earlier in all 50 states. Okay. Uh, Biden called for cooperation between the federal government and states after numerous Democrat governors praised Trump for his working with them. Okay. 
Uh, number four, Biden announced support for barring entry into the U.S. for individuals who have been to China two months after Trump announced the travel ban on China, which is interesting because Donald Trump went out there, announced the travel ban on China. Biden went out there, called it racist, xenophobic, and hysteria. And then two months later, Biden calls for a ban on entry from China. Interesting. Biden called for a CDC team to go into China 50 days after the Trump administration took action. So the Trump administration already did that 50 days ago. Biden was behind the curve on everything. Six, Biden claimed that he called for the Defense Production Act to be used before anyone, which came shortly after Trump announced plans to use it. You know, so on March 18th, uh, this goes on to say, uh, Biden said Trump must prioritize and immediately increase domestic production of any critical medical equipment required to respond to this crisis. Now, on March 18th, Trump said during a White House press briefing, we'll be invoking the production, uh, the Defense Production Act, you know, uh, and um, just in case that we need it. In other words, I think you all know uh, what it is, and it can do a lot of good things if we need it, and we will. Okay. Ow. You know, so, yeah, Biden is not looking good. Uh, seven. Biden called for someone to be put in charge of handling the coronavirus response five weeks after President Trump had already tapped Vice President Mike Pence to lead the White House Coronavirus Task Force. You know, and so we keep seeing this time and time again, where Biden, you know, in coming out and trying to say, here's how I would handle things. And we find out, yeah. We know that makes perfect sense. That's why we already did it, <laughs> you know? And then as far as it goes, you know, Biden is also going off and suffering from other problems. In fact, the Democrats are suffering from problems in general now that Bernie Sanders has suspended his campaign. But did Bernie Sanders really drop out? I mean, he's not releasing his delegates. He says he's staying on the ballot and that he's going to continue to collect delegates, and that his justification for that is so that he can exert and have greater influence over the DNC's national platform during the election. He could also be trying to pave the way for Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez to run in 2024. Who knows? But now that Biden is seen as being out and not actually running for the presidency anymore, the Bernie bros are starting to already come out and say, hey, we're not going to be voting for Biden. You know, we'll go through and sit it out. And these calls and this uh, statements is getting so bad that now members of the squad, Ilhan Omar, scolds progressives who plan to sit election out or vote for Trump. So they're already seeing that uh, the support for Bernie doesn't translate into support for Biden. And that as we saw in 2016, people after Bernie Sanders dropped out moved to President Trump rather than vote for Hillary Clinton. And so Representative Ilhan Omar, Democrat Minnesota, on Wednesday scolded progressives who may plan to sit this election out or vote for Trump. She issued a warning after Senator Bernie Sanders, independent Vermont, announced 
the suspension of his presidential bid, begging them to remain active and fight like hell to oust President Trump and end the rise of fascism in this country. You know, again, they they just make these blatant demonizing words uh, in order to attack President Trump, but they can't provide any examples. They just, you know, it's like me just responding incoherently with a bunch of insults to everything you say and then acting like that is proof that you are wrong and should be ignored because every time you make an argument and you point to a set of data, I respond by saying, you a poopy head. And all of a sudden, you're not to be taken in that. You must be ousted. Although I can't actually provide anything to back up the idea that you're a poopy head because, well, I mean, there doesn't seem to be any feces covering your face. Right? But, you know, the left, they don't actually care about debating or anything. They're always backed into a corner because of their stupid ideology. They can't defend their position, so they go out and demonize everybody. But the fact that the left is already out there, very concerned that the Bernie bros are not going to go and back up you know, Joe Biden and may go out there and start voting uh, for Donald Trump or just sit out the election. You know, goes on and shows that, hey, guess what? Things are looking really good for President Trump. Okay, so there's three more things that I want to get to. Two of them are going to be rather quick. All right, so as you know, the left is coming out with more narratives. Maybe you heard this. President Trump was warned in January about the threat of a pandemic from the coronavirus. And they're going off and spinning this as if it's a hit piece. But wait, 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 wait. There's a couple of bits of information here. One, okay, so your claim here is that Trump was warned in January about the threat of a pandemic. Now, they tried to say that Trump downplayed it, which we've already debunked the whole narrative that Trump downplayed the threat of the coronavirus. He may have underestimated how infectious it is or that our ability to contain it using normal containment measures, you know, he may have overestimated that effectiveness, but he didn't downplay the threat, right? So we've debunked that narrative, but the left is going out there saying Trump was warned in January about the threat of a coronavirus pandemic. It's like, yeah, okay. That's probably why he took action in January to ban travel from China and institute a mandatory quarantine for anybody who is coming back from China, right? So they think it's a hit piece to say Trump was warned in China and Trump took action in January when he was warned. How is that a hit piece? How is that out there actually being a negative on the president? Can anybody explain that to me? Which, by the way, this whole narrative that Trump was warned back in January, what they're trying to say, how early the warning was, their sources are the place from which they say the warning came from, has already come out and said, uh, no, that document that you're referencing to claiming Trump was warned, we can't find any evidence of his existence in our database. So the whole narrative you know, is based off of a false document. But even if it is true, the story is Trump was warned in January about possible pandemic and Trump took action in January 
to start pr- protecting and trying to prevent the pandemic. And somehow this is a hit piece. Okay. I, I don't get the hit piece, but okay, fine. Now there is another narrative uh, that is going out there and trying to say that Donald Trump mishandled the coronavirus response. Now look, we unarguably there was some, um, well, I wouldn't say missteps, but underestimation of just how easy this thing spreads and overestimation of our containment. But that's n- not from a failure of response. That is, we didn't have all the information we needed because, hey, this was brand new to the human race and we had no past data to go off of, right? But listen to how Roswell Rachel, Rachel Maddow of MSNBC, tries to spin this, and then we're going to go through and debunk her claim because she doesn't seem to care how much she embarrasses herself on air. Why? Because her viewers are so entrenched in the fake news of the left that they don't actually think about anything. So here's what this sounds like from Rachel Maddow. So as you can see, uh, by late January, China was dealing with an explosive outbreak. But even as that country started to grapple with tens of thousands of cases, the rest of the world remained largely unscathed. By late February, however, there's South Korea, there's Italy, there's Iran, all reporting thousands of cases. And now here, watch what happens at the beginning of March. Look at the speed at which the U.S. epidemic starts to take off. By the end of March, we have surpassed everyone. And from that point on, cases in the U.S. continue to grow with astonishing speed by the thousands and then by the tens of thousands. And nobody is even close. That that is the proof in the pudding. That is the data that shows a failed national response, the worst failed national response on Earth. Now, here is why that report that she is doing right there is completely ridiculous and nonsense because she's talking about total cases. Now, why does that matter? Population size. Do you know the United States has the third largest population in the world? And so when they go off and she's saying the U S has more total confirmed cases than the rest of the world, more total confirmed cases than Italy and all that. And therefore It is proof that this was the worst response. Okay, except the rest of the world couldn't even have the possibility outside of India and China of ever having more cases than the United States. Because when she's comparing total confirmed cases in the United States, most of the countries in which she is comparing us to are countries that are the size of an individual state. And we're not talking about big states like Texas. We're talking about states like maybe the size of Iowa or the size of New York, right? Where they only have a fraction of our population. So even if 100% of the population of, say, Italy was infected, 100% of their population was infected, they would still have less confirmed cases. In fact, they would have about the roughly the amount of confirmed cases of New York, right? Maybe even less than New York. They have maybe I'll have to do a check on population size, you know, by state. 
but Italy's total population may not even equal the size of New York. And so that's why this is ridiculous. They're trying to go off of, you know, a totality of numbers and then comparing us to countries who have a fraction of the population and going, they have less total numbers of confirmed cases. Well, no crap. You know, you, you can't, you know, give us a country with the population size of New York and then, you know, claim that because the United States has more confirmed cases because New York is only a fraction of our population and then compare it to a country that has less population than New York alone and say that that is in any way, shape, or form an apples-to-apples comparison. Now, you want to go off and go, well, China has more population than us. It's like, yeah, but China is not giving us accurate information. We know that they're not even testing nearly as much as we are. So it turns out when you have the third highest population size in the world, and you combine that as having tested more people than anyone else in the world, including the only two countries with a higher population than us, yeah, you're going to find more confirmed cases. Because in China, they have, they have more cases, but it's unconfirmed cases because they're not doing the testing. They're not doing the testing anymore, or they're, they have scaled it back to only be doing little spot testing. So, of course, they're going to have less confirmed cases because they're not testing to confirm the cases. And now, as far as India goes, I'm not sure what the heck is going on there. You know, and, you know, taking a look at what their actions were uh, much sooner. But India has its own set of problems. But now you're starting to understand the con of what she is trying to push there. Okay, so one last thing. There is another uh, narrative that the left is trying to push out there, and that is TYT, trying to go out and say that conservatives and those who listen to conservative information are twice as ignorant about the threat of the coronavirus than anybody else. And so, therefore, you know, that just proves that, you know, conservative media is not honest. Okay, now this is a complete lie here. And because they're basing it off of a report uh, that doesn't really ask good questions, right? So they go off and I guess they try to do this open-ended question. You know, percentage of people, you know, who think that the coronavirus is as deadly or less deadly than the flu, right? Now, it's like, well, okay, what about more deadly? Now, it turns out, you know, as I researched it, asked an open-ended question, do you think the coronavirus is more deadly, as deadly, or less deadly than the flu? And it reports that people who uh, consume conservative-only media said 57% said it was less deadly or as deadly as the flu which actually makes sense because we don't have the data to actually tell us that it is more deadly. And let me try and explain this because the Democrats are going off on incomplete and inaccurate data because right now the death rates are being calculated by the total number of confirmed cases of coronavirus and the number of deaths that they are attributing to the coronavirus. But that is giving us very inaccurate and skewed data here. First off, because of the lack of testing in the beginning, we don't know how many people actually conduct or 
are contracted the coronavirus, experience mild symptoms, and recover. We don't. Eventually, maybe we will uh, with an antibody test uh, to see that, but we don't know. So the number of people who have gotten the coronavirus and just, you know, experienced some mild symptoms and went on could be much higher than the number of confirmed cases, which would lower the death rate. Right? That, yes, that would lower the death rate. Now, is it possible that some people had died from the coronavirus uh, before the testing happened and therefore their deaths are not being included? Yes, you know, that is too, but we don't know that number as well. So we don't have the information. Now, I had stated uh, in my previous podcast, and now I'm going to have to correct this, that therefore, because we don't know because of the lack of testing, how many people got it and recovered and how many people got and died that are unconfirmed because of the lack of testing, we would have to go by confirmed cases. I have to revise that. And I have to revise that for a simple reason, because of how New York is reporting coronavirus deaths. Because I started looking into the data here as it wasn't making sense. Because we see New York is getting hammered. They have all these confirmed cases and they have all these deaths that are being attributed to the coronavirus. But outside of New York, We're not really seeing a whole lot, are we, in terms of deaths from the coronavirus? Even in states that have a much larger population than New York, like the state of California, California hasn't even reached a 1,000 deaths, and they have a lot of confirmed cases. So what's going on in New York, I was wondering? Because New York seems to be the outlier here. Well, it turns out that the information that we're getting out of New York as far as the deaths from the coronavirus, are not necessarily deaths caused by the coronavirus. And let me explain. So if someone goes uh, to the hospital, and let's say they have a heart attack, and they die of a heart attack, but then they test the person post-mortem and find out that they had the coronavirus or they test positive for coronavirus, they're attributing that death to the coronavirus even though they may have still been asymptomatic, you know, no symptoms, and even though coronavirus was not the cause of death, they're still attributing it to the coronavirus, which is inflating the death rate information. And now Mayor Bill uh, de Blasio is coming out and saying, hey, guess what? As far as, you know, the deaths from the coronavirus, we're now going to include suspected coronavirus infected patients and that. So now if a person dies, even without being tested, if they just suspect that coronavirus may have been, you know, uh, contracted by that person, although we're not going to test them, we're still going to include them in the death results, which goes off and shows you that that really, in those two situations, is inflating the number of deaths, inflating the death rates. Because if someone dies of a stroke and you're attributing it to the coronavirus, you're inflating the coronavirus death rates. And therefore, not only do we not have accurate information over how much of the total population has actually been infected with the coronavirus and just mild symptoms and went on, but now, as far as the information that we're getting from testing, we're getting inflated death rates of deaths that are not even caused by coronavirus, but being lumped into the coronavirus. 
And so I, I was going through here and I was doing some more research because on average, when you take a look at uh, New York, the number of people who die each year, and this is coming from the Department of Health for the state of New York, die each year from heart disease, cancer, unintentional injury, CLRD, or stroke, amounts to 153,684 people per year. And that equates to about 12,000 people a month, 12,807 people per month, on average, dying of these five causes, of these leading five causes. So that's the natural death rate that we are seeing in New York. But now the coronavirus has come out. And now they're attributing if you have died of heart disease, but you tested positive coronavirus, they're, they're going to lump that into the coronavirus. So if we're seeing here that the number of people who are being reported from dying of heart disease, cancer, injury, you know, stroke and all of that is decreased from its monthly average for the month of March in proportion to the number of people that they are saying died from coronavirus or in approximation, then what we are seeing is they're taking people who die normally of non-corona-related causes and now attributing it to the coronavirus. You understand what I'm trying to say here? By lumping in the, these people who were already going to die because they, regardless of coronavirus and attributing it to the coronavirus, just because they tested positive, whether or not they actually had any symptoms, is inflating the death rate. And so in the end, we don't know just how deadly the coronavirus actually is. Because when you get outside of California, uh, not outside of California, but outside of New York, the death rate drops significantly. And that's because other states are not just attributing deaths to coronavirus just because they had coronavirus. They're actually taking a look at what was the actual cause of death. And so when it comes out to this report here about conservatives being twice as ignorant about the threat of coronavirus, saying that it's only on par with the flu or less dangerous with the flu, well, that's because we don't actually have the information. We don't have the data. And the data that we do have what we know is inaccurate and wrong because of really bad reporting procedures and the lack of testing. So what we are saying is we're willing to equate this as far as being as deadly as the flu, but as far as being able to confidently say that it's deadlier, that's a little murky. You know, if you were to ask me my opinion, I suspect that it's deadlier than the flu. You know, that is my suspect, but we don't have the data to conclusively prove that. So I cannot confidently state that. Now, for instance, let's say we take a look at the death rates. And right now, with as it's being reported and being reported very inaccurately, it hovers at around 5%, right? But we know that the majority of what's driving that death rate up is in New York. But let's say, if we had testing kits from the very beginning, we find out that four times the number of people were infected and didn't die. Well, that drops the death rates quite significantly. You know, what if instead of 5%, it's really only 2%? 
or instead of 2%, it hovers at about the same rate of influenza, right? So that starts going through and changes the data quite a bit. And then we take a look at New York. What if a large percentage of those cases being reported as deaths due to coronavirus were actually related to heart disease or cancer, but are inaccurately being reported as deaths from coronavirus? Well, if we remove those people, that would also drop the death rate significantly. So when it all comes down to it, because of the lack of testing and because of the way the reporting is being done, the death rates from the coronavirus is being significantly increased. And in seeing that, we have to start wondering why are they reporting the way they are, knowing that it will give us inaccurate data and information. Is it related to the Democrats' motto of never let a crisis go to waste? Are they artificially increasing or artificially propping up the death rates in order to scare and fear mongers so that they can justify taking more control by government away from the people? Or is this, as it appears to be, as deadly as what is being reported? See, we don't know. But because conservatives are out there asking the question and trying to make assumptions based off of information we don't have, the left is out there trying to say that we are twice as ignorant about the threat and that we should listen to the data, that we should listen to the science, except for the science isn't there. Right? They keep going, listen to the science. You know, we know that it's more deadly because, you know, we actually believe in science. Well, guess what? Your guessing and assumptions is not science. And we don't have the data to tell us what the science would say. For all the reasons that I've provided, for all the we don't know how many people have been infected, for all the, hey, the deaths are being falsely attributed to coronavirus in New York. The science, how are we going to pay attention to what the science says when the science is being based off of knowingly false and knowingly inaccurate information? But the right, we want that information. We're questioning it. We're questioning the narrative that we are told because we understand the problems in the data. And so when we go off and we start talking about, you know, our opinions about whether or not this is deadlier, just as deadly or less deadly than the flu, the real answer is we don't know. And that's the only answer anybody can give you is that we don't know. And anybody who says that they know for a fact based off of what little data we have and the inaccuracies of the data we have. Anybody who says that they know for sure that this is deadlier than the flu or that they know for sure just how deadly this is, they're, they're not going based off of science. They're going off of their opinions. And now my opinion is, I suspect it's deadlier than the flu. I just don't know how much. And nobody does. But the science and the left, well, they don't really care about truth or accuracy. They care about narratives. 
So while they go out there and proclaim that they believe in the science and therefore anybody who doesn't believe you know, uh, that this is as deadly as being reported is ignorant of the science and they're ignorant of the science because they listen to conservative media, that is a narrative that points out more about the ignorance and stupidity of the left than it ever does about the right because they're not out there asking the important questions. They're not out there asking about what the data actually says, the accuracy of the data that we are getting that we know for a fact is inaccurate because of what they have said about how they're claiming coronavirus death. Not whether or not people died from coronavirus, but rather whether or not the people who died just happened to also have coronavirus. You understand the difference there. And so this is par for the course for the left, and especially for TYT, which is not even a legitimate source of information or news. They're a left-wing propaganda outlet that are funded by you know, mega left-wing donors to push out a narrative. And of course, their whole narrative is always attack the right, attack the right, claim, you know, just shout out the right is ignorant and just shout science as if that makes your dumb butt opinions, you know, proof or dumb butt opinions, scientific fact, right? What we are doing with the economic shutdown, though, is we are trying to assess just how dangerous and deadly this is. So don't be going off and buying in to the left's narrative that they somehow have all the answers to which nobody has, that they have access to the super secret top, super secret information that only they have access to, that the rest of us do not, that they have access to the true information and sources, but it's hidden from everybody else. They don't. They're just implementing their own political viewpoints, ideology, or a narrative in replacement of the lack of facts in order to push an agenda rather than push, hey, let's get the data. Because if the left actually believed in science, if the left actually gave a rip about what the science would say, they would be more concerned about trying to get accurate information rather than pushing a narrative off of knowingly inaccurate information. All right, so that's it uh, for this episode. I'd like to thank you so much uh, for listening. And share this uh, with your friends, family. Don't forget to hit subscribe, leave me a rating and a review, and I will be back again soon.